You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM with me, Karen Ogilon. We are speaking to Zafra Adil, Executive Director of the Pacific Water Research Center and Professor at Simon Fraser University. COP27 kicks off this week, and we're going to talk about what kinds of policies are going to be part of the discussion. Zafar, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Van Karen. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Yeah, once again, we're really glad to have you back on the show. Now, this time, COP27. Now, this is always a fascinating event to follow. And yesterday, it kicked off with the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. He basically told the countries that humanity has a choice, cooperate or perish. What do you make of his word choice? Yeah, I think, uh, well, let me start by describing to your listeners what a COP27 is. So it's a conference of parties, that's what COP stands for, and every year all the uh, member countries who are participants to the climate change um, convention get together in different countries and, and have a discussion. So that's what a COP27 is. And the UN Secretary General, uh, I think, is sounding the alarm bells more and more that the climate change impacts are getting uh, much more severe. Uh, You know, the other uh, thing that he mentioned was that we are on a highway to climate hell and we're uh, going full speed in that direction. So I I think that language basically is uh, aimed to give a sense of urgency about the kind of impacts that we are seeing around the world uh, in different locations, in uh, different countries. Uh, just in Canada this year, we saw some very unusual weather patterns. Uh, we've seen extreme flooding in Nigeria, extreme, extreme temperatures in uh, in the UK, um, very unusual flooding in Pakistan earlier this year. So all of these taken together are uh, giving us a sense of what future might look like. And that's why the UN Secretary General is uh, using such alarmist language to uh, to you know, move governments into action. And, you know, Zafar, you mentioned all around the world, people are feeling the effects of climate change. And do you think this COP27 is going to be different? Because I'm not going to lie to you, Zafar, every time we go into this conference, you've kind of got two camps. There's some people that are very much like, yes, we're going to see a change, it's going to be good. But then there's other people who are not so idealistic and they think, okay, once again, they're going to meet, nothing is going to come of this. What are your thoughts on that? Well, generally speaking, I think these COPs have only contributed quite incrementally in in moving the dial forward. And uh, there's a lot of people, including myself, who think that we need a lot more drastic action and uh, significant changes in policy. So so there is some sense of disappointment in in that sense that the conferences, uh, these COPs, don't produce the results. You know, the other interesting thing about this uh, specific one is that back in 2015, when we had a major uh, COP in Paris, Everyone had agreed, apart from other things, to contribute $100 billion a year to uh, address the problems that are caused by climate change or to mitigate the emissions of greenhouse gases which cause climate change. Now, in this meeting specifically, they have officially recognized that they've failed to meet that target. And part of the failure was that in 2016, as you might recall, uh, President Trump had pulled the U.S. out of that Paris Accord. Uh, so now they're coming back and starting to talk about uh, how to uh, how to find the financial resources to address and uh, you know so so there is that sense of movement again but uh, I'm skeptical that it will produce uh, enough momentum uh, and I've looked at some of the 
three conference documents that they've put together. And it's more talk and less action, I think, overall. Mm. And especially, you know, going into this conference, like you mentioned, so much of the world has been impacted by climate change. What do you think are going to be some of the key issues discussed? Well, there's, uh, I think, three broad areas that I can discern uh, are, which are going to be quite critical in the discussions. The first one, as I was just mentioning, is that uh, they're going to talk about the, the money situation and which of the funds are uh, going to be used for addressing these, these climate change problems. The second one, and it's a big one, uh, is the notion of climate justice. And this is where we talk about uh, the whole continent of Africa contributing about 4% of the emissions, and it's the heaviest hit by, uh, by uh, the climate change impacts. Uh, similarly, Pakistan, we had talked earlier uh, this year, contributes only about 0.9% of the emissions, and it was hit really big time with flooding, uh, you know, with 1,700 people who died, 33 million people affected, and close to 8 million people displaced from their homes. So there is this notion of uh, climate justice that those who are causing uh, the problems are not paying the the price. So there has to be some way of compensating. And again, it circles back to uh, to uh, you know the the money question to some extent. And the third area is uh, thinking about what the effective responses are. And uh, you know, of course, there's been lots of work done over the last twenty years. Uh, but the question now is, uh, because we know that the climate change impacts are a foregone conclusion, so should we be spending more on adapting to those changes, or should we still be investing in mitigating, which we know hasn't really worked as well as what we had hoped? So those are, I think, the three big issues. And actually, it's interesting, though, that you mentioned the fact that it's because of countries, richer countries, especially the ones that are really responsible for countries like Pakistan being impacted by those devastating floods in Guterres. He called for a pact between the world's richest and poorest countries to work together and that, you know, the richer countries should fund. Do you think we'll see a move in that direction, just given what we saw, for example, in Pakistan more recently and we see it in other countries? Well, there's certainly discussion on what would be the mechanism for uh, for that kind of resource reallocation, if I can call it that. And the question is whether you can use the current mechanism. So there's a green climate fund and there's a climate adaptation fund. So whether you use those. And then there are uh, people, the leadership in uh, developing countries, who are arguing that you need to have a a dedicated, uh, what they call loss and damage finance mechanism, So which is distinct from those other ones. So it's anyone's guess on what would be the outcome of the discussions. Uh, But, uh, you know, if you were asking me, I would say it's a a bit unlikely that they would create a new finance mechanism. Rather, they would sort of gravitate towards what exists and try to use that to to generate funds. And, And particularly because those funds have to come from developed countries, and they're already saying, you know, creating a new fund is a bit of a tough sell. Mm. Now, let's look at even Canada. What is Canada's role here in combating this issue of climate change and working with other countries? Yeah, so just as a as a side note, I would uh, recognize that this is the first time uh, Canada has set up a pavilion uh, in the in the COP location in Sharm el-Sheikh in, in Egypt. And they are organizing uh, quite a lot of events over the next 
uh, a week or 10 days. And I think they are certainly trying to do two things, uh, just in the context of the COP itself, is to highlight the kind of uh, changes that Canada has undertaken policy-wise. And, and I think there's maybe an underlying sense that we haven't informed the rest of the world about what we are doing. So there's, there's certainly a push in that direction. And secondly, that pavilion is creating... Uh, uh, you know, a sense of dialogue and looking for partnerships. Uh, so that sort of goes towards your question that, you know, there's certainly a conscious effort on Canada's part to uh, to reach out and uh, connect with like-minded countries and, and sort of compare policy solutions. Uh, again, uh, this time around, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is not going to be in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, and Minister Gilbo, uh, who's our environment minister, is going to lead the Canadian so again, people are trying to speculate on why that is and uh, what it means or what it signifies, uh, why uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is not there, uh, whereas all the other world leaders, including uh, President Biden, uh, the new Prime Minister of uh, UK, and the French President, all, you know, all the other major leaders are there. So again, I, it's not very clear why he's not there. Mm, that's interesting. Zafar, I want to thank you so much for your time and for breaking down COP27 for us. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I let you go? I, I think uh, we always have to circle back and think about what Canada is doing and uh, what kind of uh, uh, directional changes we need. Uh, so there's quite a bit of push coming from the government. And I think, as always, we as individuals also have to learn about uh, ways in which we can reduce our own carbon footprint, we can reduce our water footprint. Uh, so, you know, informing ourselves and taking action accordingly, I think, is, is uh, always a good idea. Safar, thanks again. You take care. Thank you very much, Mankiran.